Morning. It's 1970, and President Nixon needs some help. While he has dozens, if not hundreds, of lawyers and trusted advisors, he needs a point man, a fixer, someone that can get things done, no questions asked. Re-election season comes, and he's found his man, a 38-year-old Washington lawyer who once said he'd trample his own grandmother's grave to prove his allegiance. He doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. It's 1972, and the election is now really heating up. All the president's men, his hatchet man included, think the history, the history teacher got it, yeah. For those of you under the age of 35, just Google it. It's 1972, and the election is now really heating up. All the president's men, his hatchet man included, think of an elaborate plan to ensure their boss remains in the Oval Office. They break into the rival Democratic National Committee headquarters to spy on and sabotage Nixon's opponents. As you're probably aware, this became known as the Watergate scandal. It ultimately led to Nixon's resignation and, in 1974, the imprisonment of the Watergate 7, which included Nixon's fixer, Charles Chuck Colson. As he was facing arrest, a friend visited Chuck Colson. His friend gave him a copy of Mere Christianity. This changed his life. Chuck became a new man. Interesting note for you Gordon College friends out there, this man was Tom Phillips. He's, Tom Phillips is a former, Raythe, uh, former chairman of Raytheon and was a board member at Gordon College for many years. If you want to hear a funny story, ask him about the time I picked up Tom from his house and drove him to a board meeting. It involved lots of coffee over the then president's car. Uh, ask him about it, I'll tell you about it later. Jean Valjean, the protagonist of Victor Hugo's 1862 novel, Les Miserables, served a 19-year prison sentence for stealing bread to feed his sister's starving children. After being released from prison, he is taken in by a kind-hearted bishop. He feeds him, gives him a warm place to stay. Jean Valjean wakes during the night, and to repay this act of kindness, steals the bishop's silverware. Eventually, he is caught by the police and brought back to the bishop's home, where he shockingly doesn't berate Jean Valjean, but instead asks him in front of the police, why did you forget the silver candlesticks? This act of kindness, of inexplicable generosity and grace changes Jean Valjean. He becomes a new man, an honest man, a good man. He cares for and protects the vulnerable and needy. As the bishop sings in the musical version of this story, I will not sing it for you. Does anyone want to? No. Come on. All right, no. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness 
I have saved your soul for God. For each of these men, something happened that caused their old self to die. They found new life. This new life is the message Paul was trying to explain to the people of Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. I'll give you a moment to scroll there, flip there, whatever. But again, we're looking at Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. By way of quick recap, as you're scrolling there, this is the sixth week of our sermon series on Ephesians. In week one, we talked about spiritual blessings in Christ and prayer of thanksgiving. Week two was salvation by grace through faith. Week three, unity in Christ. Week four, revelation of gospel mystery and prayer for spiritual strength. Week five, unity in the body of Christ. And today, we're talking about a new life in Christ. Now, I want to look at this passage, but instead of me reading it out loud, I want to do it a little bit differently. I want you all to read it to yourself, in your head. So if you don't have a Bible with you, it's not on your phone, we will put it on the screen, but let's take the next few minutes to just read it together. This passage is broken down into two sections. First, Paul is telling the people of Ephesus what not to do, things their old self did. Then, secondly, he tells them what they should do. In verses 17 through 23, Paul tells them not to act like Gentiles. He tells them their old selves were drawn to sensuality, greedy practice, and every kind of impurity. He tells them to put off their old self, to move on from their deceitful desires. And verse 23 to be renewed in the spirit of their minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The old self kind of sounds a little bit like Chuck and Jean Valjean, doesn't it? Okay, so what does the new self look like? How are we to act? Well, verse 25 says we are to speak the truth. Verse 26 says, do not sin when we're angry. I'm just chuckling. As a parent, that's particularly convicting. Thieves are no longer to steal, but rather do honest work and labor so they can have something to share with anyone in need. Shout out Jean Valjean and again Chuck Colson. Verse, 21, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Then lastly in verse 32, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so basically, before the Ephesians knew Jesus, they were rotten people, but now they know God. Do good stuff and be good people. Pretty straightforward. So a week or so ago, it was more like two weeks ago, a few of us met to discuss preaching strategies and best practices, lessons learned, share some horror stories. One of the things that Katie Hanchett shared, so one of the challenges she faces in when, a, when she's preaching or teaching on a passage, and the passage is actually pretty clear. The message is pretty straightforward. Do this. Do the thing I'm telling you that you should do. At first glance, I kind of felt that way about this passage. 
Stop doing bad stuff. Do good stuff. Cool. Got it. Thanks, Paul. But there are two things about this passage that I want to dig into a bit more. The first I'll call order of operations, and the second I'll call sinners or saints. How many of you cringe when you see something like this? I can tell you right now, I'm actually get a little anxious, cold sweats when I see something like that. I I actually don't know. Not only do I not know if this is the answer to this, I don't know if this is a real problem. Like, I don't don't understand the parentheses and the... Does anyone actually know the answer? Seven? Zero? Three? I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you the answer. I don't know the answer. However, I do remember someone once telling me in math... That order of, I love people are Googling this. This is fantastic. I am so happy right now. Report back after the service. Uh, tell me what the answer is. So I don't know the answer. However, I do remember someone once telling me in math that order of operations do matter. I did some Googling and apparently there's this acronym. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Right? Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, Addition and subtraction. So, put another way, the order in which we view the equation and solve the problem matters. If we don't approach the problem in the correct order, we will get an incorrect answer. So, how does this relate to Ephesians and ultimately to us? Well, note in Ephesians 4, the order of operations. Note how Paul structures his arguments. He lists all the things you shouldn't do. Then he lists all the things you should do. But before he lists the new things you should do, he makes the argument in verse 24 to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is profound. Paul is not saying that the people of Ephesus had to first put away falsehood and speak truth, don't steal, then they would be in the likeness of God. No, rather, Paul is saying this is how you should act as a natural reality because you are already in his likeness. Let's go back to the bishop in Jean Valjean in Les Mis. Jean Valjean did nothing to deserve or earn the bishop's kindness and generosity. However, because of his generosity and kindness, Jean Valjean's life was changed. He acted differently. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I think most of you know this, but do you believe it? If you are a follower of Jesus, do you feel like a new creation? Do you feel holy? Do you look at this list of things not to do and think about the times you've done them? Here's one. 
When's the last time you told a lie? Actually, think about that. When was the last time you told a lie? I know that answer for me. Last Tuesday. My boss, her name is Teresa, asked me if I did this thing. It wasn't a major thing. Did I follow up with Danielle about this new hire? The truth? Nope. I didn't. Totally forgot. Wasn't even planning on doing it. What I told Teresa, it was on my list of things to do for this week to follow up again. Here's the thing about Slack. Everything's recorded. So I could actually show you the point in time when I lied to my boss. I lied. I was not going to do the thing that I said I was going to do, or I was not planning on it. The most disturbing thing to me was not that I lied. No, what troubles me is how easy it was to lie. I know that's a silly example. Believe me, I have much bigger screw-ups than that, but how quickly I default to old self actions. I don't feel like a new creation. As Paul says in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want, but I do the very thing. I'm sorry, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So are we old self people or new life people? And if we're new life people and we're made in the likeness of God already, why did I lie to Teresa? This is the last thing we'll discuss today, and it's probably the most important. So if you dozed off, come back. It all goes back to our identity. Who do we think we are, and what does God say we are? My 12th grade Bible teacher was a man named Matt Roberts. I went to a very small, very small, Christian school in the suburbs of Chicago. He was a pretty provocative guy, but in a productive way. He asked good questions. They were hard questions, but they were good questions. One day, he burst into the classroom. He was a few minutes late, so we were all already sitting down, and we were chatting with each other. He looked at us, paused, turned around to write something on the board, paused, looked back at us, opened his mouth to speak, paused again, then asked this question. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? I'm curious how you would answer that. You don't need to answer out loud. But are you a sinner or are you a saint? Maybe you're like me and carry a good amount of guilt and can't say, Sinner, I'm a sinner. Fast enough. Maybe you're thinking of 1 Timothy 1.14 where Saul calls him, Paul calls himself the chief sinner. Well, Mr. Roberts patiently called on each of us, every student. Again, it was a small school. There were nine of us in the classroom. And said, are you a sinner or a saint? Are you a sinner or a saint? Are you a sinner or a saint? Every single student, knowing that they were a good Christian, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. He smiled and very quietly said, That's not correct. You all are saints, 
That's sometimes sin. Do you know Paul calls Christians saints 40 times in his letters, but he virtually never uses the noun sinner to describe Christians? Yet despite Paul's rather simple instructions in Ephesians 4, do this, don't do this, again and again and again, we keep sinning. It reminds me of my old basketball coach. Uh, if a teammate of mine missed a few shots in a row, he would look at them and say, either start making the shots or stop taking them. My basketball coach was about this tall, but was the scariest man on the planet. <laughs> it's very simple. Oh, but it frustrated me so much. It was as if he thought the player wasn't trying to make a shot. What do you mean stop or start making them? Of course he was trying to make them. Of course we try not to sin. So how do we stop sinning? How do we live like Paul is instructing the Ephesians to live? I stumbled across this post on the Desiring God website by Zach Howard, who's a professor at Bethel Seminary. This is what he has to say. Sinning as a saint can cause two opposite and equally wrong reactions. On the one hand, we can respond with prideful presumption in our powers to overcome sin. On the other hand, we can react with helpless despair in the face of our persistent sin. What should we do? After the fall, Adam's original sin corrupted all mankind such that all men were not able to not sin. Fallen man's inability to live righteously is so complete that Scripture calls us dead in sin. Only by Christ's death and resurrection are we made alive, and by the Spirit newly able not to sin. The power of sin is broken. Yet the presence of sin has not disappeared. This is the present experience of saints who still sin. We are still able to sin and now able not to sin. Because of the frustrating reality of our ongoing sin, we groan with anticipation for the day when we will gloriously not be able to sin. We hope in the day that when we will see Christ face to face and when all things will be made new. Stay with me. I know this is long. Stay with me. Our experience is one of the sinning saints whose fallen nature is still being renewed. We're never promised total victory over sin. Instead, the renewal we experience in our life is a foretaste of future glorification. We will win battles against sin in this life, but we should not expect to win the war. We have the ability not to sin, but not the ability to eradicate sin. Our ability in the fight against sin, then, is incomplete until Christ comes Again, So if you fixate on the question, how do we stop sinning? I would say to you, you're not asking the right question. I have a coworker, um, let's call him John. John is brilliant, really smart, like really smart. He's actually also quite compassionate and kind. However, like many brilliant people, there are times when he has trouble understanding why some people at our company aren't following him or understanding some complex thing. Sometimes people ask John a question, and John will respond to the question, not with the answer, but by somewhat condescendingly saying, you're not asking the right question. As annoying as this response can be, he's often right. So, if you ask me, 
How do I stop sinning? I'll respond to you and say again, you're not asking the right question. So what's the right question? I think the answer to that question is, are you a sinner or are you a saint? You are a saint. How do we know? Well, your old self is dead. It was crucified with Christ. You are a new self, present state, right now. To quote John Piper, Paul gives plenty of evidence that Christians still sin, but he makes plain that's not who we are. Listen to Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is Paul's way, typical way of thinking. You are chosen. You are holy. You are loved. So put this identity on and treat each other with love in Christ. So what does this mean for us today? What do we do now? Well, I think some of you may feel wrapped up in your sin. In fact, I think you're so wrapped up in your sin that your identity is inextricably linked to this sin. You might feel entangled, unable to separate how you feel from who God says you are. In just a minute, I'm going to call the band back up, but before I do, can I tell one more story? That was not a resounding yes. I'm not sure if I should continue or or wrap up, but yeah, all right. Thank you. Okay, all right. Thanks for staying with me. (laughs) I work uh, in sales. I work in the sales department for a software company, and the thing I really like about sales is that it's pretty clear if you've won or lost. You have a number. If you hit your target number or your quota, you had a good quarter, or you won. If you don't hit it, you lost. Used to be a basketball coach, enjoy sports. I like things that are simple. I'm not very smart. You have a scoreboard. Either hit the number or you don't. Well, I have this person on my team. Let's call her Lisa. She's pretty new to my team. She's a super, super hard worker. She's actually probably the hardest working person on my team. But she didn't meet her number this quarter. In the simplest of terms, by the simplest of evaluations, she failed. The thing is, she worked so hard this quarter. She did the right things. She just didn't get the right results. So anyways, we're talking on Friday. Friday was the second to last day in the quarter, if there's anyone else in sales here. September 29th. She's really down in the dumps. And I paused and I looked at her and said, you know, Lisa, you are not your number. You're way more than just your number. I think you've wrapped up who you are into either someone that gets their number or someone who doesn't. She looked at me through Zoom, smiled, and fighting back tears, she said, thank you. Lisa is a trained vocalist. She's an artist. She's a chef. She's a coworker. She's a friend. 
And she's lots of things. All right, band, you can start making your way up. We'll conclude here. As I said to Lisa, Lisa, you are not your number, church. You are not your sin. You are a new creation. You're smart. You're talented. You're creative. You're a good dad. You're a good mom. You're a good brother, sister, husband, wife. You're a good friend. You're a good coworker. You're a good listener. You're patient. You're kind. You're thoughtful. You're brave. You're selfless. You love others well. But more important than all of that, you are, as Ephesians 4.24 says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is who you are. And that is the gospel. But instead of me speaking any more into your identity... As the band plays our last song, I invite you to ask one question. Jesus, what do you think of me? Who do you say I am?